You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, A few quick things. Today is the last Friday in February. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, have, I can't wait for this month to be done. Uh, so hopefully we have some warmer weather in March. Another thing, uh, if I could have this picture show up, I took this earlier this week. Does anyone know what this is? This, this is our women's team upsetting Oakland City with six basketball players, five of whom were freshmen earlier this week. That game was a blast if you were there. And after that, the men played. That game was a blast, heartbreaking loss, uh, but it was so, so fun to see our students, our community gathered together uh, in a space, cheering each other on. Uh, and man, I will miss, I will miss that. Lee, I will miss watching you and so many others on the basketball team. Um, but what a, what a blessed evening, and please continue to cheer on our women's team, and uh, hopefully they can continue to make a great run. Also want to welcome our guests. Uh, I told Rachel, it is always a blessing when we have guests come and visit our campus, so thank you for being here today. You know, I, I've worked on uh, this message for some time now, and I actually had a, a, a catchy hook from my old banking days that I was planning to share with you to to start this message. Uh, But in the last few days, I decided to adapt this to a a, a blander, blunter, more sobering opening. Asbury, one of the, the great thinkers, one of the great evangelists of our day, recently died. Now, this guy had a brilliant mind, brilliant communicator, best-selling author, internationally renowned. Personally, so much of my faith life during formative years were shaped by this individual. Prior to their death, information emerged about their personal life, rumors that they were not living above reproach in some areas. And after their their death, these rumors were confirmed. In fact, numerous details emerged about this individual revealing a consistent and unequivocal pattern of deviance, abuse, manipulation, and deception. And it seemed like each week new information and disturbing information would come out. And sadly, this person is not alone. Every year, uh, a new spate of evangelical figures make the news as they fall from grace, as they have some kind of moral failure that is made very public leaving tens of thousands of us confounded, saying, what happened? Now, let me be very clear. Talking about this, I am not up here in some elevated platform wagging a finger. Um, I'm not about that. And moreover, I believe that there is no sin where grace does not aboundeth all the more, as Paul says. I fully believe in the picture of God and the the story of the prodigal son, the father running after his son who seeks to be restored. And I make absolutely no judgment about a person's eternal destiny. God does that. 
But this morning, I find myself deeply concerned, and I just want to share my heart with you a little bit. Now, as, as a, an administrator at this school, I do a lot of vision casting uh, with others uh, for, for our institution. And we talk about education. We talk about academic excellence. We talk about rigorous, relevant 21st century education that uniquely equips our students with the requisite skills to navigate the complexities of a fast, dynamic, information-saturated, technology-driven global economy. We talk about formation, that, that education is not simply the transmission of information to you as, as a brain on a stick, but rather that you're a whole person and we want your formation. And not simply your formation, uh, but the, the formation, the transformation, the, the preparation, application, maturation for you to go out into a marketplace of commerce and a marketplace of ideas that is very complex. We talk about our students infiltrating the professions to be salt and light to the world for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. Fruitful work and labor in all fields that can be God-honoring, influential, and serve the common good. We talk about the demonstration of workplace excellence, innovation, creativity, productivity as a means to add value and to fund the currency of your words when you talk about Jesus Christ. Excellence in what we do gives us purchase in what we say. And we talk about community. We talk about belonging. We talk about you forging lifelong friendships, sharing life together, being woven into a communal fabric, reinforcing identity, meaning, and freedom. And finally, we talk about inculcating judgments, practices, and capacities for living well. I, I have staked my job. <laughs> on us being able to live into that vision here at Asbury for our students. And I believe in it with all my heart. But I want to tell you there's something else we need to talk about. And there's something we don't talk about enough. And this morning I tell you that that is fear. Now, most of you have had philosophy. We have some great philosophy professors. You talk about Aristotle. You talk about the virtues, temperance. Uh, prudence, justice, and courage. And as you know, Aristotle believes that a virtue rests between two vices, a vice of excess, too much, and a vice of deficiency, not enough. So for courage, the excess of courage is recklessness, and the deficiency of courage is cowardice, where you don't have enough. But here's the point. Never is he implying that courage is a lack of fear. Courage is not fearlessness. It is action in the presence of fear. It's not its absence necessarily. In the United States, we tend to talk about fear and freedom as if they are trade-offs, right? If you are fearful, you're enslaved. But if you're free, you don't have any fear. The author Judy Kettler says, I suspect fearlessness is a concept invented by motivational speakers to sell books and command large audiences at events that feature fear-conquering exercises. And then she says, I wonder, is fearlessness even a thing? This myth of fearlessness has found its way into Christianity as well. Let me tell you what I mean. Now, there are a lot of verses that we see that say something like, fear no evil. Psalm 23, 
or God didn't give us a spirit of fear, or the Lord is my light and salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Or the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So these verses and the hundreds of verses like them might suggest that the life of a Christian is one of fearlessness. And like so many dangerous views, this view holds something of the truth, but not the full truth. Here's the reality. In Scripture, we see two dominant notions of fear. One is antithetical to faith. It stunts our spiritual growth. It weakens our resolve. It actually alienates us from God, our Creator. This brand of fear deceives us into thinking we're in control, not God. We might call this toxic fear. And the masses of Scripture verses that tell us to fear not are actually concerned with toxic fear. Don't fear trials. Do not fear persecution. Do not cower in the face of temptation. Don't be afraid of what you can't control. Don't have a spirit of timidity. Don't be afraid of death. There's a consistent chorus of Scripture telling us to abandon toxic fear. So when I, when I act out of this fear, when I make decisions based upon how others may think of me, when I fail to act because of the, the consequences, I might lose my job, or maybe uh, it will harm my reputation, when I'm paralyzed by the potentiality of everything that can go wrong, when I avoid the other simply because they look different than me, when I don't love another with true vulnerability because it might hurt my heart, that's toxic fear. And toxic fear will stunt our spiritual growth. But there's another notion of fear that's very different. And this is a good fear to have. And that's what I'm going to try to persuade you on this morning. It begets wisdom. It recognizes limitation. It percolates awe and wonder in you and I. This fear establishes a proper sense of self, our susceptibility to danger, and our need for a Savior. It steers us toward God, not away from Him. So I want to just simply call this healthy fear, or we might think of this as saving fear. Toxic fear drives us in and healthy fear drives us out. Toxic fear and the, the forbidden fruit it drives us towards is a curse. But healthy fear, and don't miss this, says Thomas Aquinas, is a gift. It's a quote from him. This kind of fear is a gift. The former could kill us. The latter may save you and I. Joseph Pieper, the great philosopher, says this, nonetheless, the Christian inquires after the ordo tomoris. That's Latin for the order of fear. Not no fear. The order of fear. In other words, the life of a person of faith is bound up in determining what should I not fear, but what is legitimately worthy of my fear. So how do we make this distinction? What should we not fear? What, in contrast, is fearsome? For the sake of time, <laughs> I have a lot of different notes here, but let me just say this. A significant 
portion of the biblical witness speaks to forces and powers and structures that can corrupt and warp my soul, forces that threaten to detour the Godward desire of my heart, forces that threaten to mutilate and malform and warp my inner self and my soul. So what do I do about this? If there are things out there that legitimately threaten my soul, what do I do about this? And how do I make a distinction between those things? Let me name just a few things. First and foremost, it's important to remember that you and I are not immune from the very forces we aim to influence. Can I say that one more time? You and I are not immune from the very forces, spaces, places, cultures that we want to influence. I've told this story before. It's worth repeating again. I was having a, a funny conversation once with a, an acquaintance of mine, and they were telling me a, about another Christian school like Asbury that is now allowing dancing. They didn't allow it before, but they're allowing dancing, but a certain kind, cultural dancing, he said. Now, I know what he meant, but I said, cultural dancing, what's the other kind? And he just said, uh, you know, secular dancing. I was like, bro, that's culture. <laughs> it's all culture. We are in a culture. We're, we're constantly steeped in a cross-stream, a cross-pressure of different cultural forces. We don't stand outside of it. We're not immune to it. We don't walk down the street into culture, right? It's something we're in right now. I think every student should read David Foster Wallace's uh, commencement speech at Kenyon College several years ago. There, there's, it's very short. There, there's even a little book about it. Uh, but th this is not a Christian school, but it was a fascinating speech that he gave to them. And here's what he told them, in essence. He said, everyone worships. Everyone, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. You and I are worshiping something or some things. And he said, so some of us worship money, but the problem is if you worship money, you're never going to have enough. Some of us worship beauty and sexual allure, but if you do that, you're going to constantly think that you're ugly. Some of us worship power, but we're always going to be afraid. Some of us worship our intellect, our minds, but in the recesses of ourself, we're always going to be worried that we're found out as a fraud. But then he writes this at the end, or says this. He said, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not simply that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. You see, the very word culture uh, is etymologically tied to the word worship. It comes from cultus. Culture catechizes us. Culture liturgizes us. Culture is making us into something. Culture is incubating our desires. All human life, says one theologian, is doxological. In other words, its shape and direction always ascribe honor and worth to something or someone. The problem is, as Wallace says, is that we are often unwittingly shaped by these forces. 
So what do we do about that? Do we go and, and run and hide? And I think the answer is absolutely not, right? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. It cannot be hid. That's not the answer. But let's not be naive. What I'm saying is let's fly with our eyes wide open. In our desire to change the world, we have to remember that the world has a significant capacity to change us. One author said, the people I know that want to go and change the world are typically the ones changed by it. Related to this, second, have a healthy, have a proper sense of yourself. Have a healthy view of yourself. What do I mean by this? When I was growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, I, I spent a lot of time in our basement, and my parents had this, this picture on the wall of Sundance, Wyoming. And it was a dark picture because it was a, a picture of a sunset. It was really nice, uh, but it was, it was this dark picture. And then right above that picture was a light, and it was a, a really low wattage light bulb. And so th this created an effect. So uh, I, when I was in sixth and seventh grade and, and I took my shirt off and, you know, kind of did this in front of the picture, um, I looked really tan in front of that. And I'm not, I'm not tan. And I looked strong because the way that the shadows fell, it, it kind of contoured, it, it made me look sculpted in this way and, and maybe exaggerated uh, the, the muscle structure and whatnot. And so the, the image of myself was a Sundance Wyoming image. I'd go down to the basement and I'd be like, I'm really getting strong with these five-pound dumbbells I've been lifting. It's, they're working, right? My, my mom and dad uh, transformed our basement. And they put in like new carpet and they, they took out the Sundance Wyoming picture and they just put in a mirror. And, and they took out that low wattage light bulb and they put in a real light. And the first time I stood in front of that, it was a much different picture. I was like, what? That's what I look like? Like pasty white skin, like totally scrawny, like uh, what I thought were abs, those were ribs. Um, I wasn't strong at all. And so that gave me the real picture back of what I looked like. And here's, here's the reason I'm saying this to you. Who, who are the lights and who are the mirrors in your life? Who reflects your true self back to you? Who is keeping you humble? Who is holding you accountable? Remember how Nathan was able to hold David accountable. Who is your Nathan? Now, if you say, no one, I don't need that, then you're looking at a Sundance Wyoming picture of yourself. Uh, Reverend Hasselhoff said it earlier, uh, the, the dim window of the soul that William Blake says. You're seeing incorrectly. You're being fed a false, illusory image of yourself, and this is a dangerous deception. There's a politician years ago uh, who, who had a, a very public affair, and fascinatingly, his wife was interviewed. How do you feel about this? Are you able to reconcile with your husband? She said, you know, my husband goes into his job every day, and he's worshiped. And people tell him over and over and over again how great he is and how great his decisions are and how the, the hope of our state and our country fall upon his shoulders. 
So when people are treated like gods, don't be surprised when they act like it. Fascinating. One of my favorite poems, Emily Dickinson, it's a poem on fame. And she says, fame is a fickle fruit upon a shifting plate whose table once a guest but not the second time is set. Meaning you're not going to have a meal with fame twice. Whose crumbs the crows inspect and with ironic caw flap past it to the farmer's corn, men eat of it and die. Even the crows won't eat of that corn because they see it's poison. You and I eat of it, we die. Remember in Lord of the Rings? Remember when Gandalf uh, had the offer of the ring? And how did he respond? He responded this way, the way of the ring to my heart is through pity, pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. In other words, I want to do good. And wow, if I had more power, that would amplify my capacity for goodness. But you know his decision. He turned it down because all those good intentions Gandalf recognized would be warped in the, the, the presence of power. In other words, he knew the danger it posed because he had a realistic picture of himself. He had a realistic picture of his own limits. And remember the contrast of Boromir, uh, and uh, he, he had the same thing. Look, we could, we could use this ring and we could accomplish so much good with it. But then later, Tolkien says, his fair and pleasant face hideously changed as he attacked Frodo for that ring. Third, maintain a healthy system. Uh, Diane Langberg, was a, uh, she's a psychologist. She's written a lot about power, and she was recently interviewed. She said this, the way the Bible depicts the church, Christ is the head, and we're part of his body. So there's a system involved, but it's a system that's supposed to follow its head. My father, she says, was sick for many years. He was a colonel in the Air Force, bright. He was a fabulous athlete, but he ended up with a neurological disease, One of the lessons I learned as I watched him basically disintegrate over 30 years is that a body that doesn't follow its head is a sick system. A body that doesn't follow its head is a sick system. The church's problem then isn't that it's a system, but that the system often fails to follow its head. Brilliant words. I am deeply, deeply saddened when people of faith suffer a moral failure, and oftentimes a very public moral failure. I'm deeply saddened when they cause harm to others. I'm deeply saddened when they cause harm to themselves. I grieve the pain that's caused to their churches, their loved ones, families, and friends, and I genuinely fear any system or force that may drift me away from the head, Jesus Christ. I genuinely fear anything that may turn my gaze elsewhere. And here's the thing, you guys. The moment you say, yes, but that would never happen to me, you're already drifting away. Follow the head. Follow Jesus. The path is narrow. Sometimes it's dangerous. Sometimes it's unpleasant. In fact, we know it will be. Jesus said as much. But amidst the storms of life, Christ is our rock and salvation. We sing it up here, but do we mean it? 
Several years ago, I read um, John Newton, a hymn, and there was a stanza in that hymn. He said, Begone unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. And I thought, do I believe that? Do I believe that in the midst of all these hard things, if Jesus is in the vessel, I smile at the storm? Because that is our hope, you all. To say, Jesus, I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what forces I'm going to encounter. I don't know what indecision I'm going to be confronted with. I don't know what challenges are going to come to my doorstep. Will you be in this vessel with me? Because if you aren't, I can't do this. I have a proper vision of myself. I don't have the strength. But if you are, I smile at the storm. Let me conclude. Um, several years ago, uh, an acquaintance of mine was talking to me about the book, The Road to Character by David Brooks. Great book. I'd read it too. And they were concerned. Uh, in the book, Brooks is, is highlighting men and women of character. Uh, but he highlights the weaknesses as well as the strengths of these individuals quite openly. And he talks about their weaknesses of, of anger, uh, the, the lack of self-control, lust, promiscuity, extramarital affairs, people that lack uh, a healthy temperament. And this person I was talking to said they didn't like the book because, like, really, are these the best exemplars of character that, that we could find. Now, I thought that was a good point, but I said, perhaps, I, I think what the author is trying to say is not simply that they're people of character, but that the reason they're on the road to character is that they recognize their limitation. They recognize their insufficiency. They recognize themselves as the problem and the need outside of themselves for a Savior. That is the road to character. It's what Immanuel Kant calls the crooked timber view of humanity. Remember, Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil courses through every human heart. It's not out there, it's here. And left to my own devices, I'm a mess. I'm, I'm eligible, I'm subject to, I'm, a, I'm not immune from these things that can warp and sully my soul. I need Jesus in the vessel to smile at the storm and to be fortified indifferent. So hear me out. Seriously, just capture this. This is really important. I have, I have no interest in, in narrow moralism. <laughs> I have absolutely no interest in piling on rules. I, I'm not the kind of person that sees a devil behind every bush either. So if you know me, you know that's not my, my orientation. But I'm simply trying to say this this morning. Care for your soul. Protect it. Fortify it. Because there are legitimate things that threaten it. Remember that you're not immune from the very forces you aim to influence. Have a proper sense of yourself, not a Sundance Wyoming picture of yourself, but a real view of your limitations outside of the person and the power of Jesus. Don't disconnect the body from the head. Remain, as Christ says, in the vine. And what's the, what's the organizing theme of all of these things? It's humility. 
It's being humble. It's being reverent. One author says that reverence is a deep understanding of human limitations. So toxic fear will kill us. And in this sense, we're to walk by faith, not fear. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Amen. But there's another fear, a healthy fear, a humble fear, a reverent fear. And again, as Aquinas says, this is a gift, and we should see it as a gift. So Asbury, can I encourage you, and can I encourage myself? I prayed before I came to this chapel. I said, Lord, let it start with me. Let's not be a people who harbor toxic fear, but let's be a people who are alert a people who are humble, a people who are reverent. Let's embrace this gift. And may our lives be better because of it. May we edify communities because of it. And may God be glorified because of it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you be in this vessel, the vessel of this community, but Lord, the vessel of each in every individual life in this room, starting with me. Because, Lord, without you, we're a mess. We have a warped mind. We have a false picture of ourselves. We act like gods. We don't realize our own limitations. So, Father, I pray that you would be in this vessel to fortify us, to help us be alert, to help us be humble, to help us be reverent, and to say that we smile at the storm because you are with us, not on our own strength, Heavenly Father, but your strength. May we be strengthened by your Spirit. May we be strengthened by this community of Christ followers. And God, may the world be better for it. Thank you for these students. Fortify them, Lord, so that they can go and serve and let their light so shine and be salt and light for the common good, for the glory of God, and for the benefit of themselves. But Lord, help us to embrace the gift of fear, healthy fear. Father, we love you and we thank you and we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.